Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're wrapping up chapter 2 today. It's been 17 weeks. Did you know that since we started the book of Ephesians? 17 weeks. That's a lot of weeks, yeah. It's about 11 more than most people do on six chapters in Ephesians. And we're in chapter 2. Okay, stop for a second. I'm going to ask you some questions to try to get us in context to this wonderful, wonderful book we are studying together. Let's pretend we didn't teach anything else in Ephesians. We just closed the book after today and walked away. What would it be about? What's the, uh, what's the takeaway? If you had to tell somebody, here's what's in this wonderful two-chapter book, what would you tell someone? The reason why I want to, to spend a little time refocusing us is because I'm certain if we, if we stopped and said, okay, everybody jump in, shout out something you learned. We'd all throw in some really great stuff. This place would be filled with like specific little things and maybe deeper things, but either way, there'd be lots of good stuff in this place. But I, I want to stop for a second to remind you that the overwhelming, uh, I guess, desire of Paul in preaching this beyond the details that you'd probably remember in some of these sermons is that you and I in Christ, in Christ, have something wonderful. And that in Christ is the key phrase to understand what Ephesians is about. Because in Christ, everything else fits. Do you understand? It's really important. It's really important. Let me just, for kicks, just go through this. Just listen to me as I run through this quickly. This is how our first two chapters felt. Chapter one, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, you were chosen. You were included in Christ when you heard the message. You were marked in him with the seal, the Holy Spirit. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ, in Christ. Expressing his kindness to us in Christ. God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For through, through him, we both have ex- access to the Father. That is just the first two chapters. That's almost 17 reminders of what we have in Christ. That's the big idea. That's what he's trying to say. One of the challenges, I'll just confess it, when we teach a book and we teach it slowly to try to really glean as much as we can, is that sometimes, even though if we're not careful, we might miss the big idea. And this story is really wonderful. And and it's beyond my ability to describe how great it is. But the main subject, the main player in this story is Christ. And what it is like to be in Christ That's the hero of this whole thing. Remember how Paul started out this letter? Praise to God because he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything else he says from that point on, six chapters, is to telling you what all that means. That's what you have. What's ours in Christ. So the reason why I stop is so that we don't miss the joy of this letter. And I'm going to confess some things, maybe make some observations, because I think there have been places where we've dug down and plumbed into that hasn't felt so much full of joy. 
And I'll just use some illustrations. So I watch eyes. I get to see how people react to things we say. So when we said, you were predestined and chosen, and you never heard that before. In fact, you heard the opposite, and something riled up inside of you. I totally understand. That's my story. It's totally my story. My dad's my pastor, okay? I grew up in a home, and he never told me anything like this. So if, you're, if it's a struggle for you, I'm totally sympathetic. I understand that. I have no problem with it, by the way, because God wins. He just does. Maybe, maybe it was difficult for you to, when we got to chapter two and someone said, I don't know who taught that passage, but you're dead. How dead? Really dead. Like totally dead. Not dead with a little bit of life. Totally unresponsive to the things of God. And that might have moved, like that bothered you. You'd rather live more like Luke Bryan's song, you know? Most people are good. That's kind of your theme in life. Well, that isn't how it works. As, as well-meaning as that song might be, it's a theologically heresy. Most people aren't good. Not when it comes to spiritual qualifications. Because when we get to that, the text is clear, you're dead. And I understand it. that's been hard. It's hard to look in the mirror and go, there's nothing in there, nothing redeemable. It could have been the last couple of weeks when we spent a, a, a large part of our time looking at this discussion on destroying, as, a, as Paul says, destroying the wall of hostility that exists in our own hearts towards others. And that can be challenging, and I can understand why. And we stopped, and we said, well, okay, we, need to, we need to stop here for a minute and just simply ask some questions. Who are we estranged to? Who's, who's them? And why? why? Why are we estranged? Because Paul's point seems to be here that understanding that the culture divides people for all sorts of reasons, but in Christ, there's that phrase, in Christ Jesus, he's taken the reasons why we divide and the people from whom we divide from, and he says, what would be normal, God has brought peace. He's brought a new humanity. That's the text. A brand new people group. This is what you used to do. You used to divide from others. This is what Christ does in you. He breaks down the walls of hostility. So let, let me just tell you, I understand if some of our stops to plumb the depths of a passage might be a little bit tense. I totally get it. And I'm okay with it. I'm okay with how God shapes, pulls, yanks, moves. Over time, he wins, like I said. But please, please, please don't miss the explosion of joy on Paul's lips. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Whether you think they're blessings yet or not, you've been blessed. Amen? So with the big banner of joy, smile at me, with the big banner of joy on our minds based on the theme of this text, um, it's mind-blowing. Let me just remind you of a prayer that Paul prayed at the very beginning of this letter and the one that we as pastors pray for our church and our own hearts as we journey through Ephesians, just to remind you, seems like a good prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I pray for that. I pray for every one of these particulars that are in the description of what it is to be in Christ, that somewhere, somewhere, you'd get it and you'd see it as inheritance. Look what else I get and it wouldn't be challenging. We have four verses we're looking at today, verses 19 through 22, where Paul continues what I consider the amazing description of this glorious inheritance in the saints. 
And let me help you just kind of remember some of this stuff. If last week, if you're here the last two weeks, there's a word I would use, at least from Paul's text, to kind of give you the theme of that section. The word is peace, mentioned four times in those eight verses. It's mentioned once in 14, one in 15, and twice in 17. Sounds something like this, for he himself is our peace, right? He's the one that preached peace to you. That's Paul's words, this idea of breaking down the wall of hostility, peace between others. That's the theme. But if we're going to put a word on this passage, four verses, it's going to seem weird, but it's true. The word is building. That's the word. It's mentioned four times, once in every verse in this text we're going to look at today. But I want you to keep that in mind as we read this, and then we'll ask God for help and discernment. We're going to back up to verse 14 to get a running start at it. That'll help. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here's our text. Consequently, or therefore, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for uh, your discernment now, for all of us, that we would hear your words, for us, your people who are in Christ. Lord, protect my lips from saying anything that isn't true or accurate or right. Protect our hearts from distraction or resistance. But God, most of all, I pray that we'd leave here with more joy, knowing what is ours in Christ. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a phrase for the big idea of this little section. That God is building a building, a new community. A new community of people who can dwell with, he can dwell with, and they can be his people, and he can be their God. In fact, we've gone through this enough to know Jew and Gentile is what Paul has in mind. Insiders and outsiders, people who knew something, people who knew nothing, God put together under Christ, in Christ, to make this, this group of people. And God is building a building. The word is used four specific times in, in this text. So it shouldn't be a surprise to you um, when one writer describes it kind of like this. It's a new uh, third race. That's how you need to think about it. God is making another race of people. Um, a new humanity, according to the text, reconciled to God first and then to each other. What Paul does here to help convey this idea of this new community is to use word pictures, which you should be very familiar with. If you pick up any text somewhere in your journey through the Gospels or even in the epistles, you're going to find somebody says something. It's an illustration form of this spiritual reality, right? In fact, it's, it's in Jesus' own sermons and in the way he would talk, he would describe himself as the light of the, that you and I are the light of the world, implying some things about how we push back on the darkness and how we shine brightly and, and expose him, right? 
or of Jesus himself saying that he's the bread of life or he's the good shepherd. Right away, when you say that, there's, there's some work you might need to do, but not a ton of work. He's the good shepherd. So you think about shepherds. You think about what is good. I just had a conversation in the back about him, um, God being our father, and the greatest picture of any great father. That really helps us understand God. The Apostle Paul, he's one for word pictures, you know, and he's describing what it is to become like Christ, this journey of being transformed. He uses words, athletic terms, like I box in such a way. I run in such a way. He's, he's trying to describe the effort that he puts into, the, the kind of blood, sweat, and tears he puts into pursuing Jesus and transformation in his own heart. So he describes it in athletic language, which in our culture probably fits even more than their culture because everybody knows that. And here Paul adds to this word picture form illustrating this idea of what it is to be this new community of people that God dwells with. And he uses this idea of a building ultimately, but he uses three illustrations to get us there. One is that, that of a country, the second one is of a family, and the third one is of a building to describe his church, okay? First of all, let's look at the, the new country. We who are in Christ belong to a new country. The first half of verse 19 says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with, with God's people. You might have a version that uses the word alien here. No longer aliens and strangers. And that paints, for me, at least a pretty clear picture of what it's like to be on the outside looking in at Jesus. A lot of people would maybe not use those words, but know the experience of what it's like to be a foreigner to those words. And Paul is describing what it's like to now be on the inside. You used to be foreigners and aliens. I was a, like I said before, a pastor's kid. And in the first, I think, 15 years of my life, we moved five times. Five times. Eight years, we moved a couple times in Texas. I had a really thick draw, Texas draw. And everywhere we went, I was made fun of for sounding weird. I was an outsider. I didn't know, didn't know the color. We moved from Texas to New Mexico. That was weird. The whole thing didn't fit, you know. Um, they didn't like football as much as we did. It was strange. And that's what it's like to be a stranger, but to be a foreigner gets even more intense. Being in a place you don't belong. You have no rights. You have no access to those things, no privileges of being a citizen. They're not yours. There's all these limitations. And what Paul is saying here is in a spiritual sense, before Christ, we were all strangers. So use the illustration. You're outside. You didn't belong. You had no rights, no privileges. You didn't know the king. You didn't know anything about the king. You didn't know what the king could do. You were a stranger. You were, had no blessings as foreigners, you didn't understand God. Isn't that what Paul says? The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness, it's a joke, I don't get it. Before Christ, my own confession is 20 years sitting in sermons my whole life, the truth went right over my head. Foreigner, we're speaking a different tongue. I don't know what's going on. These promises they keep talking about, they don't apply to me, they're my promises. That's what it's like to be a foreigner and a stranger. But Paul says that's not the way it is anymore for those of us who are in Christ. That's why that's the key word, in Christ. All that's changed. Now we're citizens with God and his people. That's what Paul says in, in verse 19. And just like being a citizen, it brings certain privileges. It brings certain accesses. It brings a protection and some rights and a clear 
understanding of authority. That's what it means to, to belong. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it in a pretty pithy way when he said, we no longer live on a passport, we get a birth certificate now. That's what it is to be in Christ. I'm not on the outside looking in, man, I got the papers. Look, I belong, DNA. It's who I am in Christ. So to Paul's audience, like to this collage of humanity, in Christ, you and I, in Christ, if that describes you, have become a third race, a new people. The church is a group of people from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences and colors and creeds and brokenness and messes and troubles and just a mess all put together from all different places, one new humanity, one people in common in Christ, all of us sharing this, forgiven, saved, and loved. That's what we have together in Christ, one common people. We got a new language called love. We got a new commitment and new loyalties and we got new goals and we have new affections and we have new, a new family. That's how it works. That's sort of what Peter said in his letter in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people. Did you know that? A royal priesthood. Did you know that? A holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Been there. I knew what that was like. Now you are a people. You're God's people. That's what Peter says. Everything's new. A new humanity. Now that's awesome. Amen? But it gets better. It gets better. Paul goes on to say, you're not only a new country, but those who are foreigners and strangers now get a new family. Like what he says, second half of verse 19. He says, you're also members of his household. Members of his household. To be a citizen with God's people, that's, that's good. But to be a family is better, right? Far, far better. We have the uh, same father. Look, look at chapter four, verses uh, four through six. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We share the same dad. That's what it's like to be in Christ. We're part of the family. We have the same position as children. That's what Paul describes in Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry out, and we all know this one, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now, for children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You and I share the same inheritance, the same father, the same closeness to the father. We share the same closeness to each other. That's Paul's instructions to this young pastor named Timothy. He says, here's how I want you to treat each other, like brothers and sisters. Be family. I read this this week. I thought it was a good line. As God's children, we outrank everybody. I got a picture that's just going to, I don't need to say much more. Look at this picture. JFK doing something looks presidential, like pointing at something, and Junior is under the desk. There should be a subtitle under here. He's your president, but he's my daddy. 
You get the point? He's king. He is king. He is mighty. He is the creator. He is everything. But he's your dad. And I didn't say that. He did. I was talking to somebody just a little while ago. When you try to use pictures, like earthly pictures to describe God, what happens in us sometimes, we start talking about the fatherhood of God, and we find everywhere that breaks down. Well, you don't know my dad. You don't know his dad. You don't know a dad that does this or dad does that. Take the best form of every best part of a father's heart and put it on steroids. That's God. Not the problems, the blessings. He's the ultimate dad. 1 John 3, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what you are. He could have said something else. He could have said a distant relative. He could have said, you know, just someone working around the yard, hired hand. He could have said other things. He didn't. How great is the love of the Father is lavished on you that you should be called the children of God. And the best part of a dad is he cares for his kids like nobody else, right? What troubles us moves him. Cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let me give you one more thought when it comes to the family. You can be who you are in God's family. Illustration, you can wear your fat pants to his dinner party, okay? (laughs) You don't have to pretend to be something. You don't have to put on airs. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be good. You just be you, just like you are in your home. They all understand. Well, the father understands even more. You don't have to become something. You don't have to pretend like it's all good and you got it all figured out and you're really devotional this week. He knows. Fully known, fully loved. As much as an infinite God can love, he's already given it to you. So you don't have to pretend. No insecurity, man. We are crippled in our culture with insecurity. So desperate to matter, so desperate to matter to the wrong things and to the wrong people. If I told you the creator of the universe who knits you and holds you together, loves you infinitely. Why are you dancing? Why are you insecure? Why are you afraid of being who you are? Because you've now been brought inside. Part of the family. He's your dad now. So, as Paul describes it, in Christ we are citizens of another land. We're members of a new family. And here's the third picture Paul uses to describe this new third race, and that is of a holy building. Look at verses 20 through 22. Okay, this members of a new household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I have done so many jobs in my life, I'm embarrassed to even mention them. But in the early 80s, I worked as a construction laborer in the Chicago Laborers Union. And we built big buildings. And so I spent a lot of time pouring concrete. And one of my jobs, not my favorite job, was working for bricklayers. And my job was to make mortar and get block and brick and scaffolding built, keep them busy, that was my job. And it's interesting, when you read how Paul describes this new building, we've been building the same buildings the same way forever. 
When it comes to specific stone or brick buildings, we have foundations, cornerstones, and building blocks, and it's always been that way. So this illustration shouldn't be some foreign one. It should be very familiar to us. And that's how Paul breaks this down in this passage, starting in verse 20. He says this new community, this new people, this new race of people has a a foundation too. Look at verse 20 again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the foundation is the word of God the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. This is not referring to, by the way, Old Testament prophets, but specifically prophets given around this time to uh, teach the scriptures before the canon of the New Testament was complete. This is what one writer says. These are New Testament prophets as indicated by the facts that they are listed after the apostles and are a part of the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Their unique function was to give authority and speak the word of God to the church in the years before the New Testament was complete. That's where they fit. In fact, if you look at chapter 4, verse 11 and following, you see as Paul lays out the offices in the church, he starts with apostles and prophets there, and that's what he's referring to. Ken Hughes describes this as being a key foundational part of, of our understanding The church stands or falls in regard to the New Testament scriptures. If you tamper with the scriptures, if you tamper with this gospel, if you you mess with this, if you question this, it all falls apart. This new building won't stand. This new temple, this holy temple of a people of God will collapse under its own weight. And that's sort of what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Now, you've heard this before, but listen to how powerful this is from this writer to his young apprentice, And what he was supposed to be about, he says, but as for you, continue to what you've learned and have been convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now listen, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy, preach the word. We rise or fall with this foundation that Paul is talking about here. This new building is built on this foundation of of truth on the word of God. Notice this second thing he adds to this building. The new community has a perfect cornerstone. He says, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. A cornerstone to a building is what makes it straight and plumb and true and strong and safe and reliable and stable. And what other word you want to use to describe the strength of a building? It's the perfect illustration here. The cornerstone in a building decides the building. All other stones have to be adjusted to it. It's the standard of the building. You getting the point? Come on, lean in. You getting the point? Jesus sets the standard for the holy temple of God. Jesus is the strength of this temple. He is the security of this temple. He is the safeness in the temple. He is the strength in the temple. Jesus is the point of this whole thing. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's true, John 14, 6. I am the way, he said, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's true, he's true, just like a cornerstone is true to the building. In spite of what C.S. Lewis says, and he does say this, that 
God is good, but he's not safe. He's referring to people outside looking in, not insiders. So when we are on the inside, when we're part of the family of God, he is safe. David said, Psalm 32, you're a hiding place for me in the presence of my enemies. Colossians 3, Paul says, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is straight. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He is straight. In a crooked line to salvation. There aren't many ways there. There is one straight, narrow road, and it's Jesus. He is strong. Proverbs 18, 16, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Cornerstone works so great to describe what Jesus is for us. So let me, let me make this point. I think it needs to be made. This church, this holy temple of new people, it's not strong because of its leaders. There are good leaders, there are bad leaders. There, there are leaders for now and leaders for later. Leaders don't matter. Not in this, not in this understanding. This holy temple is not strong because of its numbers. We're a big church. It's not strong because of our numbers. It's not strong because of our bottom line. It's not strong because of our history. It's not strong because of our mission. And it's certainly not strong because of its impact. All those things I'm, I'm happy about. This holy temple, this community, this new people is strong for one reason. The cornerstone. Jesus. And he will not share his glory with another. So you and I just lay it down. I'm so glad he's here. I'm so glad he uses us, but I know who's holding it together. It's not us. Let me keep going in this building analogy, okay? There's something else a part of this holy temple that's not stated, but it should be pretty obvious. This new community involves us, the saints. If we're gonna use this uh, metaphor that Paul is still in here, this holy building needs stones, that's where we come in. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are stones in his temple. We are mortared together with the good news and the Savior. He's holding us together. It is built by Christ. There is a a writer named James Boyce who suggested some applications regarding this kind of word picture. I think it works, so let me just go through these things quickly for you. Stones placed into this great structure are chosen and shaped for their position by God. It is his temple. He is the architect. It is not for us to determine where we will fit in or how. In other words, God is sovereign. God is in control, and God does the work. We've been saying that in the theme of Paul's thoughts throughout this letter. Here's another thought. The stones are placed in a position in relationship to Jesus. They are, are attached to him. If they're not, they're not a part of his building. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. There's an exclusiveness to this building. It's in Christ or out. You, you can't add this to the collection of other things you have your hope in. You're a part of the new family, the new humanity, the new community, if it's Christ you're attached to, and no other reason, period. Here's another one. The stones are of different shapes and sizes, perhaps of different material, and they are employed for different reasons. Some serve in one way and some in another. This is a multicolored giftedness that's in this place. I heard Justin do the announcement for Redemption Kids, and I know there are hundreds of people who serve Redemption Kids, 
and there are some who have lots of experience and some who have little experience and some who have medium experience and some are older and some are younger and some are happier and some are not. I mean, it's all in there. Shapes and colors, a part of this whole thing. Stones are linked to one another. From where they are placed, they cannot always see this. They cannot always see, even see the other stones, but they're a part of one interlocking whole regardless. I love that statement because it talks more to me about the church in history and in total. I mean, sometimes we get so myopic about what God's doing just here in Gilbert, 1820, West Elliot. Like, oh, this is the church. No, it's not. The church, this holy temple that Jesus has committed himself to, that the gates of hell will not prevail against, this thing, this bride is working all over the place in history and in total. And yes, Gilbert, this little place on the map is a part of it. I love that. The stones of the temple are chosen, shaped, and placed not to draw attention to themselves, but to contribute to the great building in which God alone dwells. This whole point is not about us, in other words. We're shaped to present the glory of God. Make sense? And one last one. The placing of each stone is only part of the long work begun thousands of years in the past and will continue to the end of the age until the Lord returns. So just keep picturing this giant screen and there's one pixel and it's got your face on it. And if you can get thousands of years back, you'll see the big picture. The glory of God, the salvation of the saints, the temple of God, the holy community, all put together because of his power. I had one other thought I'm adding to Boyce because um, I thought it helps us. Stones are just stones until they're chosen by the builder. You understand that? And only then can they become a part of the building. Again, this is Peter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. He's alive, he gives life. You go from a stone to a significant piece in what he's doing. So can I finish with a couple of obvious things to do? Will you rejoice in your redemption? Will you just slow down enough to rejoice that you're his? Uh, remember how chapter two started. This is a bummer, but I got to remind you, dead in your sins, separate from Christ, without hope and without God. That's where it started. Now look at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer. Whatever it is, is a description of our brokenness and our sin and our outsider position, not anymore. No longer. That word actually indicates a complete and permanent change. The fact of the matter is that all of us should still be dead and without hope. But God, rich in mercy, rich in grace, for his own good pleasure, saved us, redeemed us, bought us out of slavery. So we're no longer dead. We're no longer separated from Christ. We're no longer without hope. We're no longer without God. We have it. Rejoice in your redemption. Amen. One last thing. Rejoice in your sanctification. Verse 22. And in him, there's that word, that phrase again, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
In other words, we're being transformed, changed. How, you ask? Let me tell you how a bricklayer does it. I built a seawall with a bunch of bricklayers at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin one winter. And it was made out of stones. And the bricklayers would pick the stones, generally of shape and size, and they would break out this thing called a brick hammer. They'd hold that stone in their hand, and they'd go, whap! Welcome to transformation, church. <laughs> That's how it works. God takes you. The you without hope, you. The you without a clue, you. The you without God, you. And he takes you and he holds you in his hand and he goes whack, 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 whack all over you for the rest of your life so that you fit perfectly into this wonderful wall, a part of the holy temple of God. And I'm sw I swear we're not going to enjoy a lot of the whack. But he's committed to our fitting. He's committed to our purpose. Do you understand? So rejoice in your sanctification. He's working. And I understand sometimes we hold on to the things that are our shape and he's prying those little stubborn fingers off of who we think we are so that he can make us like himself. So in spite of what you're feeling right now, whether you're under it or it's over you or you think it's too much, stop for a second and just say thank you. God, you've made a commitment to shape me, to change me. Nothing's going to stop you, so let me just rejoice. Amen? Amen. Listen to this. This is kind of a great summary of this section, chapter two. Through the blood, the suffering flesh, the cross, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, aliens become citizens, strangers become family, idolaters become the temple of the true God, the hopeless inherit the promises of God, those without Christ become one in Christ, those far off are brought near, and the godless are reconciled to God. Therein is the reconciliation of men to God and men to men. Amen? Let's pray. Let's thank God together. Father, thank you for just the encouragement this is. We, we wouldn't do this, we wouldn't invent this, and we wouldn't participate in this if it wasn't for your tenacity and your pursuit and your commitment and your will and plan. So here we are as, as, as stones being shaped to fit into your kingdom, into your holy temple where your spirit can live. Lord, I understand there's such diversity in this room of stages of life, thoughts, perspectives. But God, we're all stones. Help us just celebrate the fact that you're taking people who don't and have not and don't know you and you're making us into something new, this new humanity, this new community. Lord, we love you. We say thank you with all of our heart, with all of our soul. 